just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name's Johnny Ball. This is Speaking Influence for a little while longer, maybe a couple more weeks, and then we'll be changing, rebranding. But for now, it is still the Influence and Persuasion Show to help you become a more powerfully persuasive communicator and to build influence and authority through your speaking and your communication. Now, today I am going to be speaking to a guest who has great experience in the US political scene and took that experience and moved into sales and the technology sector as well. So he's going to be sharing with us his insights and what he's learned through his through his being trained in the political arena and how that's helped him in his professional life and what he has taken away from his learning in the political world and some of the things that he sees as having changed in the way that politics is being talked about and communicated. We talk about things like uh, the most effective communications and what really matters in terms of influencing people and some of the key differences between speaking and influence within the public political sector and the private tech sphere. So there's going to be a lot of interesting points here and also a very fun conversation. My guest is Paul Rupert and he's going to be sharing with us some of his experiences and insights into both the public sector and the private sector and what we should most take away as being key differences between them but he also has some interesting stories that I think we can learn a lot from. And we get some interesting insights from Paul around sales and communication around sales. If, like me, you are interested in influence and persuasion and speaking within the public sector and the private sector, then you are going to find this to be an incredibly fascinating episode. So all that remains for me to say is relax, have fun, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that helps you to master the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. Welcome to the show. And today we're going to be taking a look at one of the areas of influence and persuasion that I am particularly personally fond of, which is influence and persuasion in the political sphere. And we're going to talk about a few things around that as well and maybe their tech industry and a few other bits but to do that to have that conversation i have invited onto the show paul rupert paul welcome to the show good morning johnny how are you pleasure to be here i i am great and really looking forward to this conversation and super happy to be speaking to you i'm going to start as i start all of my shows by asking you who is somebody for you who you look up to respect and admire for their influence and persuasion and how they've used it Wow. There's a, a gentleman who teaches a class at Yale on leadership. His name is Stanley McChrystal. His full name would be General Stanley McChrystal. 
And General McChrystal used to be the guy who ran the war in Afghanistan and before that in Iraq. His last posting was as the head of special operations for the entire U.S. military. So he was responsible for those Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Air Force Parajumpers and the whole nine yards. And he is a tremendous public speaker. And he is not one of these rah-rah guys, although he only eats one meal a day and he runs about six to eight miles every day. And he did that even while he was overseeing these massive organizational demands on once you hear him, you can see, you can listen to a number of different presentations that he's done on YouTube. This guy is really, really good. He is both engaging on an intellectual level. He is funny. He has got clear command of the stage when he makes that, makes his presentations. And he obviously makes an impact when you walk away. So I would say Brigadier General Stanley McChrystal, and he's written a number of books, including one called Leadership on Leadership. Fantastic. So that's had a, a, an impact on you, nonetheless, with with his leadership too. Fantastic. Great answer. Well, let's take a little bit of a look as yours. Now, you do have a background in the political world. And so just to, to give us a bit of an idea about what that background looks like, sure. can you share some of your political experience with us? Well, well, you know, I fell down the rabbit hole as right out of college. I had the opportunity to get a job working for a United States senator named John C. Danforth as a first legislative correspondent, which is back then the individual who would read all the kinds of letters that would come in as well as newspapers every day. And I would write a letter response to an inquiry. And so we had files and files of these packaged responses. And then I became a legislative assistant, which is kind of like a salesman for a U.S. senator in the context of you're trying to promote various types of legislative initiatives, get sponsorships, get get hearings held, and then being able to turn it into laws, if you will. And from there, I ran, I then went into running political campaigns, was trained by the Republican National Committee back then. And we're talking right now about the mid-1980s. And so my arc of activity in the uh, the political game went from, as I say, running political campaigns and then getting a political appointment, what's called a Schedule C over here, which means that you are you kind of report to the president of the United States, even though you're inside the government. And so it's a temporary appointment. That's how we run things over here. And I think it's very similar to what you guys do in the UK. And after that, I ended up going to graduate school and got a master's in public administration. But half my time was in Harvard Business School and half my time was the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. I got pulled back into the business. It's kind of like the mafia. Once you're in, you're never out. (laughs) Even though I was looking to join the private sector, but I had an offer that I just couldn't refuse, which was to work for a cabinet secretary who I had personally run into during your travels, if you will. A guy who was a former professional football player, as well as a U.S. congressman named Jack Kemp, who became secretary of housing and urban development. And, uh, then eventually I left and became a trade association lobbyist for a technology trade association. And there too, that's kind of a sales role in terms of trying to persuade others, both publicly and privately in terms of getting initiatives. So that arc, you know, I've done legislative, I've done political, I've done policy. And in all those cases, it required a skill of being able to present in public arenas or even just coming out and giving full on traditional speeches. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess that might be one of the things that might surprise people about going into those into those sorts of sectors in the public sector. I wonder, you, other did, did you expect that that was going to be a part of it, and, and were there oh, any yeah. other sort of surprising oh, yeah. elements? Yeah, there as well? it, for me, I was a little bit, you know, genetically predisposed to this. My father had run for Congress when I was six years old. He he was defeated, but did get a, an endorsement from the local major newspaper for the primary. Was, this was in Cleveland, Ohio, and then he ran for city council in the city that we lived in. He missed out on that that as well. Turns out I also have a second cousin who ran for Congress. So this is something that I had a sense of. That's what it, the game was all about. Mm-hmm. Um, had an undergraduate degree in political science and read a lot of stuff in terms of the biographies of political leaders. And also seen it on TV. You know, I was one of those precocious kids that was watching national political conventions when I was 12 years old and 13 years old and thought this was cool yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't remember being like that so much myself, but I've always had that. <laughs> I've always had a, a fair interest in, in the political world. Were there any things that maybe you found surprising about the way that interactions and the machinery worked in the political world as you actually were working in it? The machinery, well, it's a good way of putting it. I always looked at it, this is a business. It's a business like all businesses. And even in the construct of running a political campaign or starting up a political campaign, it's no different than starting up a business that I then realized later when I was in a startup in the private sector, or startups, I should say. So in that regard, that wasn't surprising. The, and the process is much like anything else. But one thing that is different, it is, person, it is certainly a young person's game. As a very wise person, when I was kind of looking to get out of the political world, this was a guy who happened to be almost billionaire status, but he was serving as an undersecretary outside, inside the Housing and Urban Development Department. And he had been, a, a, of all things, a real estate developer in Cleveland, Ohio. And he told me once that politics is a great place to start a career. It is a great place to end a career like he was doing, but it's not a good place to have a career. And I kind of came around to that fact uh, and then realized that I wanted to do other things. I didn't have a passion for anonymity, which if you are a staffer, that's really what it takes. You're really behind the scenes all the time. And that doesn't mean I'm ego driven. But I got into the game thinking I would like to maybe run for office someday and then um, decided to go a different direction. Yeah, fair enough. And so when you were doing that, what did you find was particularly important in terms of being able to influence and persuade the kind of presentations and interactions that you were doing? Yeah. Bottom line is that in the political realm, as in many others, but since we're focusing on that political experience, you are constantly influencing without authority. And you may have the responsibility to get something done, but you just don't have the authority to say, do this, you know, like a hierarchy, like a, let's say a military command. And even my first opening week or month, as I recall, working for a U.S. senator, being trained by essentially kind of the chief operating officer, which is called an administrative assistant in a senator's office. He said, you're three ways, three calls away from having a conversation with a cabinet secretary. Well, when you're 24 and 25, you're like, huh? What? What are you thinking? Nobody's going to take my call. But then you realize that they are going to take your call because you're saying, hi, this is Paul Rupert. I'm a staffer inside Senator John Danforth's office of Missouri. We have an issue relating to A, B, and C, and we'd like to have a meeting between the secretary and the senator. When might that be able to be arranged and planned? 
And he was right. And along the way, you have the opportunity to, hello, Secretary X, Y, and Z, nice to meet you, et cetera, et cetera, do the planning and staffing, and you are influencing the process without having the authority. So it's a matter of balancing humility and agility, and because some people don't have a sense of that, they think it's really them that's doing it when it's all derivative. You know, you're like, you are living or you are operating on someone else's clear power scope, not your own. At least I had a recognition of that. So maybe I acted a little differently. That's probably why I had such a long career in the business. So. Yeah. So in, in the political world, is, is it your perspective and the, and maybe the reality of the political world that your power position, if you like, or your hierarchy there in terms of how you're perceived is a key factor in being able to influence and persuade. Oh, absolutely. And not only you could be that anonymous staffer who never gets in front of an audience outside of maybe your boss or somebody else, or you could be that other staffer that is well-known because you're able to communicate a message very effectively in a number of different arenas. And that's really what it comes down to. And having that ability to turn it on, turn it off, being able to be, again, the agility of being in front of a, let's say, a radio show, which is kind of the same, but different than a podcast. Because in a radio show, you've only got about a two-minute window to be able to make a soundbite because they're going to go to commercial. Mm -hmm. But in a podcast, you and I could be talking for an hour without having to be rushed and compressed in terms of what we want to say and get that message through. And also even illuminating the various layers of what we want to be able to communicate. So yeah, there's, there's, depending on what you're doing and what your personal objectives are, but being able to command the attention and engender trust from an audience is critical. And that's true both in the private sector and the public sector. The difference is sometimes in the public sector is that the audience might be a little larger uh, and a little bit different. Most unique audience I ever spoke to was about 200 people and about 125 dogs. No, <laughs> you know, was, and I didn't know the dogs would be there, uh-huh. but I didn't really do the research, to be honest. I was asked, again, back to influencing without authority, a request was made of the Secretary of Labor. At the time, I was working in the Labor Department. So the Secretary of Labor was asked to make a comment and present at a uh, an association of visually impaired people and how they operate in the workforce. Obviously, the Secretary of Labor, that's an important point. But this right. was kind of a contentious issue. So that got rolled down to a program agency lead. And I was the program agency lead, the chief of staff. Well, the program agency lead he was also a political appointee. He did not want to touch that. So he said, all right, Rupert, you're going to go do this. Like, oh, really? Okay, sure. I'll step into the line of fire and do the presentation, but and give the speech. And I show up and it's in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I remember walking out to the audience and all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, <laughs> there are all these same dogs here. And they were all very well behaved, et cetera. But it was just one of those things as to who would have thought? Who would have thought it was just so, so bizarre in some respects. And I guess I did okay because I was walking through a museum that was connected to the building. This is a, and it, this was in the state house in Little Rock. 
And a woman approached me and said, hey, you were speaking today. I was like, yes, I was. Thank you. I was. And she mentioned, you did a good job. That was a tough audience. It was a tough message, but it was also a tough audience. I was like, oh, okay. Well, thank you very much for that. That's very gracious of you. Yeah. 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 That's great. I wondered if you you said there was like some learning you had to do, particularly in the political world and in communication. So what, what do you feel are the most important things that you had to learn about communicating from the stage or even interpersonally to different sort of power level people that have helped you along that journey? Yeah, the well, the first one is that I always do is kind of shake the hands of the audience. So that's essentially just breaking the ice. Breaking the ice could be opening with something humorous, not necessarily a joke, self-deprecating humor, things of that nature. It's a matter of just getting things started. If you watch McChrystal, he's one of these, uh, and I use this in the private sector a lot, you just walk right in and start. No, good morning, good afternoon, nice to be here. Thank you very much for your time. It's just like, it was dawn. It was a Tuesday morning and we had a parachute jump and the day changed dramatically. And that's kind of how he starts off one of his speeches. And it's about a parachute jump that he took on 9-11, you know, in North Carolina. He got out of the plane, the, you know, he got on the plane, we were at peace. He jumped out of the plane, landed, we were at war. Things can change that fast. So that's one of them. It's also be respectful of your audience and their attention. Put out a plan. One of the things I remember is that, and I can't remember where I came across this, but it's essentially a transformational plan, which is walk in, you have a sense of what your audience knows. They're there because they have certain beliefs that they may be aspirational that I'd like to change. And then it's a matter of emotion and feeling in the context of, okay, they know something, they believe something else. They're a little bit fearful. And now you give them a a call to action. You give them a plan, you give them a a direction as to what to do. Uh, And that's a pretty good rubric to apply to almost any public engagement and any outline. So that's probably the one that I would take away. Right. And you still apply that in the public, in the private sector work that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've got a presentation tomorrow and it's 30 minutes long is what I've been told, but it's got to be seven slides. So just do right. the math. All right. You know, <laughs> you're not going to put, this is something that's also very different since we're talking about it in the context of In the private sector, when I started doing presentations, it was radically different than what I was accustomed to, which was a formalized speech and a journey, the storytelling aspects of even a political speech. Because at the end, it's aspirational, inspirational, and you are trying to get people to do something based on something that is not concrete. When you start talking about, I want your support, I want your vote, well, for what? You know, in the private sector, there's an exchange of goods. There's an exchange yeah. of services for money or something else. In the private, in the public sector, when you start public speaking, it's about calling to action for something that is conceptual, not concrete. And that's a big difference between the two. And so how does that play out in the practical aspects? Well, death by PowerPoint versus something that's going to be aspirational and speak to the rafters, which was another one that I remember, which is there are people here but speak to either the scope of the speech, the style of the speech. If you've got 20,000 people in an arena, speak to the 20,000 
all the way down to the all the way up to the rafters. And you can see that really good speakers do that. Bill Clinton was just a master at those kind of things. John Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And then you find certain styles that you apply and that work for you and you modify them. Did you ever get any kind of training? And I wonder if this may be a common thing because it certainly is in the UK of things like speaking with rhetorical devices or body language when you're presenting. Was there ever anything instructional on those? Yeah, I, I, again, in this, I went through this program that I mentioned earlier for running political campaigns. It was run for a very, very short time. There were only about 25 people who were trained. It was done by the Republican National Committee. The time frame of this is like 1984, 85, mid-80s. I was in my early 20s. And we had everyone from Dress for Success uh, come in and talk about how you want to dress. Now, back then, it was back, again, the 80s. So we're all wearing suit and, suits and ties and all that stuff. And yes, I've gone through media training, both in the private sector and the public sector. But keep in mind, I don't do this on a day-to-day -day basis like, let's say, a professional politician, like a congressman or a member of parliament would be doing. Um so those things, and I, ironically, even in, for a little while, I wrote testimony for cabinet secretary, and that's essentially speech writing, but you're speech writing in a one set, you're speech writing in a one question format, question answer, but the answer has to be compelling, interesting, as well as communicating the facts and figures or whatever it might be. So in that answer, there's a mini speech, uh, and so, yes, to answer the question, and I've also gotten media training in the private sector. So right now, my media training is telling me the answer is too long to the question. <laughs> I, I think I need to get some of my other guests some media training as well on that. Yeah, it's, it's good, to, good to have that awareness, I think, because it's very easy, very easy to give. To get lost. It's quicksand. I, yeah. Yeah, it's quicksand. That's even in the private sector, you can, in, in either way. If you really got a command of something, you can get into the weeds, can get lost in the quicksand very quickly and your audience will desert you. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I sometimes find that uh, some of my guests are perhaps used to delivering a lot of their content information as a presentation mm. and it's kind of hard for them to get out of that. So you ask them one question, it seems to lead them into their presentation. And so, yeah, it's definitely something to be aware of because it doesn't work so well in, in the interview yeah. format for sure. But there's also that verbal jujitsu. And what is the verbal jujitsu? Well, that's when you may ask me a question, but I'll take that question and reframe it to the answer that I want to give. <laughs> What's the message of the day? So that seems to be more common in, in political arenas. Oh, absolutely. I've never, yes. I've never really encountered that so much on my show that I've had somebody answer the question they want rather than what I've asked. And it's not, I guess it's not such a confrontational thing. Like in the political world, you're generally going to try and you have a specific message to deliver. You have maybe a talking point or a, a particular area that you're supposed to be talking about you have to get on message as quickly as you can so of that's course, right you're going to look for the ways to do that and to take a question and say right but what's re this is why i hear a lot on from british politicians right now but what's really important is, uh, that's right yeah so it, so it switches things around and yes yeah, so do you ever get a straight answer in politics do you think a straight answer well that depends who's answering the question and I grew up and, well, I cut my teeth, so to speak, in a different political era, a very different political era. As I said, it's kind of like the mafia. 
But in this case, the Republican Party has gone in a direction that I wouldn't be going. And I never, I looked at it as opportunities for leadership. I was never one of those political operatives that, okay, if it's Tuesday, I advocating if it's Tuesday, you got to wear green socks. And um, so it, it's a different environment than it used to be. And that's as much about the diverse multiple platforms that are out there that may be giving voices to people and groups that really don't warrant that because overall they don't get that much attention, but meaning amongst the overall population, but within certain silos, they certainly get very energized and that's left yeah. or right. Yeah. It does seem that there has been an environment from maybe extremes on both sides where more attention has been given to the more shocking opinions, the more loud and extreme voices. Gets the attention. Because, yeah, because That's it right. gets the attention. It's clickbait. And it, yeah, and it's probably not really, we think about that in terms of the political world, that's not a healthy political conversation. It's not, not healthy in the political world that's because right. we're focused on the extremes rather than probably the vast majority of people are more, you know, left, maybe a bit left and right, but still meet somewhere in the middle and can still have discussions and have mutual respect. Whereas when you're at the extremes, you really just end up with opposition. Exactly. And even in the context of what we do as hum human beings every day, we all make compromises. So compromise is part of our engagement, part of our genes. And yet the extremists are always just, well, no, you committed enough or you caved on an issue. And it's kind of like, you know, what Reagan said, if you vote for me 70% of the time, you must be a friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that was about him and his relationship with Tip O'Neill and things like that. So it's kind of like, all right, so you're saying that 70% isn't pure enough. What is, what's reasonable here? Or 70% just doesn't cut it. That's when you start reassessing all of this, but we're yeah. a little bit off track relative to uh, the topic of the day. Yeah, a little bit, but it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sidetrack. So thank you for going there with me and, and thank you for bringing, <laughs> taking over the host. For... See, that's another one. That's another verbal jujitsu. Grab the steering wheel and drive it where you want to go. <laughs> but thank you for bringing us back on track. I wonder in your communication experience, how much that has been primarily in the US or how much maybe has been to a more global audience? Well, in the private sector, I've, I am in the telecommunications world, which is a global architecture, a global network, and a global business. And as a result of the jobs that I've held in the private sector, I've traveled to about 80 countries right now. And part of those is making presentations. I've spoken at over 60 conferences in the last 20 years. I kept track of being the political guy that I was. When I forgot my first invitation, I wrote down what it was, what the topic was. And then I, I've got the list of about 65, I think it's currently at. Haven't done one of those in a few years for all the obvious reasons. Um, yeah. And yes, I, in one case, I attended a conference of um, young political leaders. This is people who were under 35 at the time. I wish I was back to 35 again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was in the UK. And then as a result of doing that, I ended up getting an invitation to speak at a conference in Russia, of all things, in 1994. So that too is very different than it is today mm -hmm. by a member of the Russian Duma. And this was in a city called Svedlovsk. I believe. 
And that was right on the border of the Urals between Europe and in Asia. And that was another one that I remember that answered your question. And I was, what was I talking about? American federalism, of all things, in front of okay. a bunch of Russian Duma members. <laughs> Pretty interesting topics. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a bit, a bit more about leadership. Like we, st- we kind of started off talking about leadership, like somebody who you look up to in terms of that. And like you have gone from the, the power structures of political leadership into more of a leadership role yourself in the world of tech startups. So what do you think are the key qualities of leadership that you have see and hopefully embody for yourself? Well, for myself, I came across, let's say, a meme or saying, which is humility and agility. Humility in the sense that I've been in too many rooms where there were some really smart people in that room. So I'm not one of these guys that I'm always the smartest guy in the room. And the other aspect is the agility is the ability to have a belief or have a a concept in your mind of where you want to go, but also being recognized that you will probably change your direction. And that's how I, you know, live my life in the context of having the resilience to be able to overcome obstacles, but also being humble enough to recognize that a lot of different opinions and a lot of different perspectives, sometimes you got to embrace those. Sometimes you got to pivot away from them. And that's the combination between humility and agility. Now, if you're going to ask me the question as to, well, who might be able to reflect that in the political world, I'm going to take a pass on that one because back to my perspectives of the political world as it is today, I wouldn't, there aren't a lot of people that I would say, yeah, this is one of those guys that has that capability. Not to whitewash everybody, but, you know, President Obama, even though I was Republican, so to speak, I thought he guy was the right place, right person, right time. Certainly a very gifted communicator. Absolutely. He and his wife are both excellent speakers. And and I think that certainly played a, a huge part in his rise to presidency and to being reelected as yeah. well. And even I worked for, as I said, late Jack Kemp, who uh, leadership. So he was a former professional football player, a quarterback, kind of like a central halfback, like Harry Kane or something like that over there in the UK and had an interest in politics and was played professional football in Buffalo, New York for the Buffalo Bills. And then he ended up retiring and running for Congress and he won. And from there, later on in his career, he actually ran against Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential campaign for the Republican nomination, as did George Bush and a whole bunch of others at the time, and uh, pivoted along the way and uh, had a great career in the political world. Yeah. I think that when it comes to communication in general, and I think this is definitely important in the political world as much as anywhere else, that conviction is a huge part of effective leadership and communication and you mentioned someone like Obama he certainly at least seemed to have that and he came across that there was conviction there but we hear that very don't hear that very often in political figures and so we maybe tend to hear more sort of functionality or even just extreme hyperbole yeah but we don't get so much of the sort of genuine authentic convicted people who've gone into 
co- uh, politics because they want to make a difference or at, or even up on stages speaking because they want to make a difference uh, and i think it's a huge part of leadership i think it's one yeah. of the things that for me makes some religious leaders perhaps interesting to listen to in terms of the conviction that they deliver when they're speaking because they really believe in what they're talking oh yeah about. like martin luther king i mean you just right. listen to some of his speeches it's just incredible in terms of his ability to rally and back to resilience and the whole notion, the I have a dream that continues go back to it, go back to it, go back to it. That's an incredible communicator. Yeah, it's a, something we can only hope to see more of in public life, I guess, the, these days. Yeah, well, we're kind of demanding, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> we, we want a lot. We want a lot. That's right. We want people to be functional, but we also want them to be inspiring. And yeah. yeah, exactly. And sometimes those two don't, those two things don't always equate. Doesn't mean that you're going to be a great manager versus a great leader, a great speaker versus a great doer. Yeah. Uh, everybody has their point in time and their effectiveness in that public arena. Yeah. One of the conversations that I often get onto having with people in, the persuasion conversations at least is about the differences or perhaps perceptions around persuasion and manipulation that (laughs) some people sort of think they're both the same thing and some people think that there's a difference. What would be your take? Well, I've in the private sector, well, even before I sold stereos, putting myself through my last two years of college and it was a great experience to you actually engage exactly as you were talking about. What is the fine line between persuasion and manipulation? Now, manipulation, there is essentially a coercive factor, in my view, that you're able to direct somebody and manipulate them to do something they may not want to do. The same thing happens in persuasion. So there's such a fine line. I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to say where that line is, it's blurry. And yeah. depending on the context, when you're getting close to it, when you're not getting close to it. I'll admit that I was very effective and I used every tool I could to close a deal. And one of the things I, I did, which my boss finally realized what was going on, and he was like, that was brilliant. We were measured on margin as well as revenue. And so yeah. every deal was a deal. It was like selling cars, okay? Meaning, you got a platform. Here's the add-ons. With each of the add-ons, there are different margin profiles. You can increase the margin based on what you're bringing in, taking out speakers, receivers. These are back in the old days. Turntables. They've come back to be really. They have come back. That's yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up the tape manufacturer TDK, which was cassette tapes back then, gave us gave each store in this stereo company and this was a, a chain something like 50 to 100 pre-tape boxes and they were just plastic had a lid on it and they had slots that you could put cassettes in so you could carry it around this is kind of what the world was back then yeah, and you would exchange tapes world, yeah. yeah exactly and so they were for free they were given to the company for free and the whole idea was you give them away and my perspective was i could sell that okay and i what i did was I either sold it independently or I would put it as an add-on, as a freebie in the context of, look, this is a $39.99 or let's say $29.99 opportunity. And if you buy the system, I can throw in two of these right now. 
you know, and I can give it to you for, let's say 10 bucks, five bucks. Well, guess what? That just yeah. added on margin to the deal, which then profiled me a little bit higher. That's kind of ruthless. I don't know about ethics, but my perspective at the time was I needed to do everything I could to put into my tuition fund so that I could money. get out yeah. of college. So, um, was it dishonest? Well, nobody said, wait a minute, is that for free? It was never, there was no advertisement. There was no like display. They were all in the back and nobody would do anything with them. And I finally realized, let's use this. I can use this and tried it and it worked. And in a few cases, I was actually selling them for money. So <laughs> did any, well, I guess the issue would be, did anyone think that they were getting ripped off by that? No. I and mean, it seems not. It no, seems it was not. a value so, add in there. That goes to the persuasion aspect mm -hmm. and creating a different mindset, a different, a different belief in there's this notion of make-believe, right? Make-believe is being fantasy. It's the Walt Disney perspective of all this. And even in speaking, public speaking, relative to persuasion, make-believe is making a different belief, right? Yeah. And so making that different belief is that's done through persuasion. That's done through a little bit of sleight of hand. That's done through the magic of rhetoric, even in the context of like the three-act play, I can't remember Aristotle's three parts, but I do remember beyond PowerPoints, which is we have balance, imbalance, and resolution. And in some cases, you're actually creating the imbalance. So you're taking the character and you put the character in the tree. And then the crisis becomes, you then light the tree on fire. And then the resolution is, you're able to take the character safely out of the burning tree and save him. And you've yeah. got a new set, new, you, you've created a new, a reality. new reality. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think if we take a look at the stories that are going around, we see a lot of that these days, people creating new realities. I wonder if you, I, I was thinking as you were talking that so, as someone who started off in sales and uh, to pay your tuition, then gone into the political world and that now gone into the private sector and technology, is everything safe? Of course it is. Uh, of course it is. There's no question about that. And some people say, oh my God, you, how can you be in sales? And back to persuasion. And I never looked at sales as a claiming all the value on the table. I mean, this is now negotiations analysis. And guess what? Negotiations are sales too. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes you're actually selling to the people in the room. And sometimes you're actually selling to people outside in the room who are not even in the room. Okay. So there are all these different dynamics of it. And I, even when I was in graduate school, I took a really famous course at Harvard Business School that's still there today, which is called negotiations analysis, 30 odd years later. Okay. And so you're constantly negotiating, constantly trying to persuade um, people to do something different and try to create that new belief, that new yeah. situation and move them from here to there. And therefore that's sales. I think Daniel Pink wrote a book, everything is sales. So, and he's got another one I can't remember, but I've used this term often combinatorial capabilities, which is you're bringing in all these different elements all at the same time, yeah. kind of like an orchestra conductor. So you're trying to orchestrate the solution as well as harmonize everything at the same time. Not a lot of people can't really do that very often. It requires vertical strategies, horizontal strategies as well. Yeah. And therefore, okay. you've got to communicate that. 
Da- Daniel Pink, he's the guy who did the book about, oh God, I'm going to, I'm not sure I'm going to remember it now. No, it's just shot out of my head. Yeah. And I'm over here looking at my pile of books and I thought I had it off to the side, but I didn't. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was just thinking there was a, a book of his that I remember reading, The Truth About What Motivates Us. I think that was. Could be. I don't do recall that one, one but yeah. yeah uh, but yeah, an interesting guy. I've, I've heard him on some podcasts as well. And he has a lot of. Yeah. Right material. brain, left brain thinking, things of that nature. Right. Yeah. One of the things that we discussed when we had a chat a while back was about the importance of difference. And I know it's maybe not a natural lead into this, but it is something that I want to get to with you in terms of how important differentiation is in the private sector, particularly. Differentiation, refresh my memory. It's been a couple of weeks since we talked. It has been a while. So in terms of standing out from the crowd, in terms of not being like everybody else. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's always also the balance that you want to be part of the group, but still distinctly different. That goes even again into leadership and how you communi- communicate. You know, in the context of do you want to get ahead of your audience and bring them along? Do you want to push the audience forward from within as though you are part of that audience and communicating that way? And there's that balance. If you get too far ahead, too far over your skis, your audience may abandon you for whatever reason, either what you said or what you're doing or what you're thinking, et cetera. There is that that fine line also between persuasion and manipulation. And here yeah. again, it's in the context of how far out do you want to go as a leader to bring them along? I think the, uh, the term lean in, which is also reflective of that, how far do you want to move into these forces, these contrary forces this is all part of the balance and your consideration this is all now now we're moving into strategy <laughs> do you well yeah i was bringing it back then because do you feel that in the business world particularly that the more people are perhaps motivated by mission or by shareholders what do you generally observe most people Wow, I hate doing that broad stroke as to say, well, this is how everybody works in business. That's just not the case in the sense that you're always, the nature of capitalism is you are looking to feed and satisfy your investors, your employers, your employees, your customers, and even you have a responsibility to the industry. So that means your competitors as well. So within that construct, then it becomes individual behavior. I mean, what's who is the Chainsaw Al, who is the CEO of Sunbeam. Sunbeam was a small like kitchenware manufacturer and uh, they provided, they made like mixers, hand mixers and things that maybe irons and things of that nature. That was their segment. And they called him Chainsaw Al because he cut, cut, cut everything. And then eventually, and the investors initially loved that because that was increasing profitability, higher return to the company. But in the end, it just scrubbed the company out because quality dropped. There weren't enough employees to get the job done and they lost market share and eventually they were sold, I believe, or went out of business. I think Sunbeam might still be around as a brand, but that's the, again, the balance between the two as to how do you manage all these contrarian forces at the same time. Mm. So when we started hearing about, say, I'm going to dive into whitewashing everything, a sugar drink manufacturer to be left unnamed and how they want to improve the economy. But at the same time, they talk about 
having their product within the reach of every human being, I'd say there was a conflict there in terms of those. So, yeah, I know I can see that. I, I mean, we see a lot in terms of maybe political TV show and even business. Oh, of course, that's reality, things. right? Isn't it? Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the, I mean, this, for many people, it is. For many people, it's, oh, yeah. it's, that's their exposure to it is like the most behind the scenes we get to see is maybe House of Cards or Succession oh or, okay. you know, <laughs> or, or whatever else. Well, so, at least um, go to something a little bit more inspirational, let's say The West Wing or something like that. The but West even, Wing, okay, that you know, Aaron one. Sorkin, the way he writes these stories, it's like everybody is able to get up and they're giving, they're, they're giving soliloquies and speeches and just in small conversations that should be recorded for the ages. <laughs> so, yeah. and, yeah. And, you know, of course. <laughs> that's just not how it works. <laughs> but that's, t that's TV life. Now, there yeah. very little of, of how things, but there is, there is this concept of people maybe having idealized, you know, maybe a fantasy about what life is going to be like oh, sure. in the political realm or and maybe even in, in the private sector I had as that. well. Yeah, I had my own ideology, the, not ideology, but my own perspective that this is the way it was going to be and then got hit with reality and thought, my God, that guy's a congressman? Really? What a <laughs> dummy. I mean, I'm smarter than that guy, and yet he's the congressman. Well, guess what? We can look, we can, whether it's the parliament or the Congress, you can look at people and go, oh, you got to be kidding. He's actually, or she's, especially now these, she's actually a representative. I mean, I could call out two, but you get the idea. Yeah. And so, so does that reality very much different to possibly what people imagine or what they hope for. And so a lot of that, I guess, is the machinery and the reality of it can eat up the fantasy very quickly. Would you say the same is true in, or you've experienced the same in the private sector as well? No, the, uh, the dynamics of the private sector, I, people don't go into trying to sell mobile phones, for example, and mobile services because they have a, a grand sense of altruism. It's usually something that's really cool. There's some cool factor of, God, this technology, I can talk into it and it's going up into the air and it's, it's captured somewhere else in the air. And then it's moved on to somebody who's in the UK, who's got the same kind of device and we're talking with each other and it's done in milliseconds. How cool is that? And then that motivation of how does that work? What's the physics involved? Or then how is it sold? Why is it that there are now more mobile phones than any other electronic device ever manufactured by me. Or why is it that, for example, I'm making a presentation tomorrow and I'm talking about what's the total addressable market for convenience? Well, we're all human beings. We all like convenience. So the total addressable market is 7.5 billion people, right? It's a trick question because in this case, I'm talking about the dynamics of a technical solution that goes to your handset. Well, guess how many handsets, how many handset subscriptions there are in the world? Now, I said we have about 7.2 million, 7.2 billion people, right? Mm -hmm. Give me a guess. I couldn't, couldn't even be Active subscriptions is 15.9 billion. That's more than two phones per every person. Mm. Okay. So somebody out there, I mean, I've only got one phone. Okay. <laughs> one yeah, phone, one subscription. <laughs> my son's got one. My wife's got one. I'm like, okay, boy, somebody's got like two, three, four phones up. And so that's kind of, God, I've even forgotten where we were going relative to that. But <laughs> see, the number just blow, blows you away. You know, it's, oh, you're yeah. asking about the motivation within the private sector. So yeah. my point in that is 
how is this sold? And why is this so so embraced by human beings? Well, it's all about communications. Guess what we're doing here? And even in this dynamic, uh, in this particular presentation, the space that I'm in is called communications platforms as a service. Essentially, the concept is platform of platforms. So a platform that comprised of messaging, voice, video, OTT messaging like WhatsApp, artificial intelligence, even old style legacy email, all brought together, managed uniformly and in in an integrated way called a omni-channel solution, which then would allow you to maybe contact me via, via video, and then we could alter to doing text all within the same context so that you could communicate with me using video and I could communicate with you using text. That's our choice, our preference. Yeah. This is how fragmented everything's gone. So the motivations for pursuing that, it's all based on individual. It's, it's, I find it interesting to, you know, just to think of like, just yesterday I was having lunch with my partner's family and uh, niece was there and, and she's like five years old. She wants to play with the mobile. And like, I'm thinking, those things didn't even exist when, when I was a kid. Uh, and right. kids are, uh, kids are really, really proficient on them. And thinking, you know, we've, we've been able to see a really rapid development in communication. I think we still see that. Even as a podcaster, I see the platforms like this that I use to communicate just speeding up and improving over time. It's a fascinating uh, Exactly. To, to I experience. mean, just it, it, as you said, again, back to the presentation I'm using, I use the same data point. 31 years ago is when the first mobile handset was the large ones that were consumer focused that was manufactured by Motorola. And 31 years and 30 years ago was when the first SMS was sent. So the phone existed for voice solely. And then SMS was in for is was essentially part of it, but they never thought about, oh, we can use this for characters and texting until about a year, year and a half later, and then it came into the development process for the handset manufacturers. So back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, how many economic units are measured in teens of trillions sent up into the air on on an annual basis? Text messaging didn't happen 30 years ago. Incredible, incredible developments. I know it's been a really interesting conversation and we've gone to a lot of different places with it. And and I want to start wrapping things up a bit for us now and i always like to ask my guests for some book recommendations whether there's some stuff around communications particularly for you or, or whether there's other books that have just been very impactful for you what what are the books that you would recommend above others well i like to read i came prepared one is called <laughs> the obstacle is the which is all book, about yeah. the stoics relative to the topic at hand There's one called Speak Like Churchill, Stand Like Lincoln, which I read some years ago. And this is a contemporary of mine on Speaking Well, which is by Peggy Noonan. Who is Peggy Noonan? Peggy Noonan was the speechwriter who wrote most of Ronald Reagan's speeches when he was president, including the one, Tear Down This Wall, Mr. Gorbachev. And then she went to work for George Herbert Walker Bush and wrote his, his Thousand Points of Light speech, which was considered one of his best speeches that he gave as president. And then she went on to become the, I think, the opinion editor for the Wall Street Journal for the opinionate, opinion page, and then has had a, a longstanding career. I mean, we're talking 30 years ago. And when she was doing this, she was in her early 30s. Just an incredible writer, great communicator. Great. Well, definitely a good person to learn from. For, for you, if, 
people may be tuning to this and thinking, you seem like a really interesting guy. They enjoyed this conversation. If they want to know a bit more about you, is there some way that people can come and Easiest way is through LinkedIn. So you can find me, my full name is Paul R. Rupert, and that's R-U-P-P-E-R-T. And be happy to talk to anybody who's interested in furthering the conversation, but also if you're a technology firm that's looking for new types of strategies relative to go-to-market and commercial development, this is what I do specifically in the telecommunication space. My clients have included Book, MasterCard, private equity firms, venture capital firms, as well as a host of companies inside the space. And maybe we can work together. Well, I hope that they will get in touch with you. I will make sure that there's a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for anyone who would like to do that. Paul, I really want to thank you for this conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been fascinating. We've covered a lot of different areas. I wonder though, if there was one thing above everything else that you most hope people would take away from what we've talked about today, what do you hope that would be? Wow. One thing to take away from all of this, I have a challenge coin on my desk that was once given to me by a member of the Special Air Squadron from you guys, all right? And you can see the motto in the banner underneath the dagger is who dares wins. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of those things that is always kind of prompted me to let's try this, mitigate the risks, figure out a plan, and let's go make a change. And I've been involved in two startups, one which was phenomenally successful. I guess maybe that kind of why I ran political campaigns. The political world is hardly a linear engagement as a career bounces around a lot, but I spent a little time there and then decided, no, let's go to do something a little bit more staid, more traditional. But even there, I was doing untraditional things. Do do you think you may ever return to the world of politics? No, 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 (laughs) not, (laughs) not in that regard. I'm kind of a normal, maybe quasi normal political person now that, yeah, I put up the presidential banner signs that I did in the last election, but that was the first time that I'd done that ever as a political operative. One of the things that I, a guy that I used to work for, his name was Lee Atwater. And Lee, unfortunately, died of brain cancer when he was still a young man in his early 40s. But he became the chairman of the Republican National Committee under George Herbert Walker Bush because he ran Bush's campaign. And this was a guy who played what we call over here Bubba Smart, meaning came off the affection of or the affectation of not too smart, real strong Southern California, or excuse me, South Carolina accent. But the guy was sharp as a tack. He had a PhD in political science, really sharp guy. And his story was, (laughs) politics is like sex. Everybody thinks they're an expert, but there are only a few of us who actually get paid to do it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, again, Atwater, there's two messages in that. One is that everyone thinks they're an expert. But second, there are experts who do this, and you're one of them now. But the bottom line is you're a horse in the context of you'll do whatever it takes to yeah. to win that contest, et cetera. So back to a different number of layers, even though it's just, it seems kind of a maybe a off-color joke, but in reality, oh, there's more to it than you first expect. So 
Well, that, that's probably one of the most fun ways I've ever in ended an interview before. But, uh, <laughs> All right. Well, then I, I cleared the bar of being interesting conversation today. Um, you, you certainly have done that, Paul. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for giving up your, your time and coming and sharing your history, your stories, your knowledge and wisdom with us. Really appreciate it. Well, Johnny, it was great to be here. And thank you very much for your invitation. And I hope your listeners found it interesting and valuable. Uh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Paul. Well, thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, be sure to maybe leave us a review or maybe give us a star rating if you're listening on Spotify. If you have your device in your hand right now, then that's going to be a really easy thing to do. Very easy on Apple Podcasts. Just click the dots on next to the show and you can do that. And on Spotify, well, you've already listened to more than 30 seconds of the show. So you can just add the star rating there, right there and now. It's going to let me know how things are going with the show. And if you are leaving a bit full of feedback, then you can let us know what you like and maybe what you'd like to see on the show as well. Now, we are going to be relaunching the show pretty soon and there are some really incredible guests I've got. I've been having so many amazing interviews. We are going to be having a much stronger focus on podcasting as a tool for influence and persuasion because I think we're going to see it playing a much bigger role, especially for personal brand business owners. So if you haven't already got on the podcasting train, at least as a guest, if not as a host yet, then now it's time to be thinking about that and making sure that you are tuned into Podfluence from our very first new episode of the new season, where we're still going to be talking about influential communication and persuasion skills and building authority and following. But we are also going to be having a lot of focus on how you can build authority and influence and get sales and generate lead flow and get speaker bookings from being a podcast guest and maybe even having your own show. It's all going to be exciting stuff. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm already getting a lot of people asking to come and be on the show to talk about these things. Some of them are people who are very well known in the industry and I know you're going to want to hear those conversations. So whether you're into the podcasting thing yet or not, it doesn't matter because the thing is, if you have a business, if you have a message, if you have something you want to get out there, then you want to be thinking about utilizing podcasts at least as a guest and maybe more. So subscribe to the show now. We're going to be staying on the same feed. And within the next couple of weeks, you'll see us transition from speaking influence to podfluence. And I'd love to hear your feedback. And please do, if you got any value from this show or you get any value from any of our shows, share them out with your network because they will too. And that's really how the show grows. So thanks for joining me today. And I hope to see you again on another episode very soon. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, have an amazing rest of your day. Go and make great things happen.